if the 60-something Paul Brody could have a conversation with that mini-bike-building kid back in Point Grey, what might the run of the conversation be, and what advice might you offer him? Good question. Not necessarily an easy answer. I guess always believe in yourself and and never give up. And I think that's one of the qualities I have. I don't give up. And that's, that's a part of the reason for what success I've had. Never gave up. guest on this episode of the Work Not Work Show is Paul Brody, fabricator, artist, and educator, who in 1986 founded Brody Bikes, then a pioneer in the field of mountain bike design. Paul built thousands of frames over the course of his career and introduced many important design innovations, such as the gator blade composite fork and the sloping top tube, for which he was inducted into the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. More recently, Paul has gained an outstanding reputation in the field of motorcycle restoration, as well as the fabrication of meticulous reproductions of antique racing motorcycles from the 1920s. They have gained an international reputation and have been displayed in many venues, including the Guggenheim Museum. In addition, Paul currently teaches the art of frame building at the University of the Fraser Valley in Abbotsford, British Columbia. In over 50 sessions, his students from all over the world have successfully built hundreds of frames after learning the skills of the trade from Paul. In 2016, Paul published his autobiography entitled Paul Brody, The Man Behind Brody Bikes. It's a rollicking read, one which he will bring to life in this interview. You will find there are many more dimensions to Paul than you might first expect. We sat down at his exquisitely well-organized fabrication shop near his home in Langley, British Columbia. Join me as we talk with Paul Brody. It's a conversation you simply do not want to miss on this episode of the Work Not Work Show. Paul Brody, welcome to the Work Not Work Show. It's truly a pleasure to have you as a guest. And, and oh, by the way, folks, in the background, those are Paul's peacocks, and they'll be on the soundtrack along with everything else. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Paul, you grew up in the Vancouver area, Point Grey, if I'm not mistaken. After your family moved here from the UK, can you talk a little bit about this time, say up to the time when you graduated from high school? Sure. I don't think I was an exceptionally happy kid. I was shy. I didn't like to talk in public. I think my escape was riding riding my motorcycles. It was working in the shop. It was it was making things. I lacked a lot of self-confidence. I was really lazy. I think I hit a low spot about 17 and I I was critical of everything and everybody and that's when I started to pull myself out of it. Mm. So that kind of describes what I went through when I was in high school. You built a mini bike when you were a kid, like when you were really young, I think even before high school. Was that true? I was 12. I, I started making it in grade seven mm-hmm. because all of the other kids, well, not every other kid, but a lot of kids had, had them. It was a Bonanza mini bike and they were $149 and I did not have $149. <laughs> And one afternoon, someone told me about someone that had a frame for sale, and it was $35. And I got very excited about that, because I think I had $35. And I went to look at it, and it was a piece of junk. 
And as I slowly walked home, I made up my mind that I would make my own mini bike. I don't know where that idea came from. It didn't come from anybody else. But so I started making my own bike. It took about a year. And what was your parents' perspective on this? Were they permissive or tolerated it? How would you describe their, their perception of that whole project? I think they were fine with it. Uh, I, was, I was never told that I, I could not make a bike. And my father was a welding inspector at the time, so he would come home with a tube bender and bits of metal that I could use. So in that sense, he was supportive of me. Even though he was a welding inspector, he didn't know how to weld. Mm-hmm. So by the time I'd, I'd made up a, up a jig out of wood and got that assembled, he found someone who was a welder. And the deal was that I would pay for lunch for all three of us. And that's how the frame got welded up. And then I got into, into grade eight after that. And I learned how to weld in the metal workshop. So I welded up my own forks for the bike. So high school for you was primarily about metal shop. I hated French. I hated most of my teachers. I thought school was pretty boring. And it's interesting that I've ended up as an instructor now. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But high school, no, I I did not really enjoy high school much at all, except for the shop. I would skip classes to go work in the shop. I, my sense of it is, is that you had the potential for college because you actually went back and took some courses a few years later. But you chose not to. You just wanted to get to work. I decided that I would go to Langara and I took psychology and sociology and philosophy. And out of all those courses, I thought I would like a psychology the best, but it turned out to be pretty boring because you just had to memorize stuff. And the class that I really enjoyed the most, it was it was philosophy. Yeah. But where does, where does that go? You can be a, a professor, I suppose, but that's rather limited. Right. So that's when I picked up the saxophone and I transferred into the music department and that I, was that was pretty spontaneous like you just heard a guy playing a saxophone and decided on the spot that you were going to learn i was up at whistler and i had a had a great weekend and, and there was a band out on a patio and the saxophone player was great and he inspired me and so i bought a saxophone i just i sort of went on whims often i was going to talk so, to you about that actually is that okay. that your life took some interesting detours over the course of your professional arc to date um, and it seems like in a lot of cases, it there were decisions made more or less on the spot, like the saxophone. Looking back, I don't think that I ever really planned my life out. It kind of evolved, and it certainly has a pathway of its own, but it often took unexpected turns that I never saw until the turn happened. Mm-hmm. And sometimes other people were involved in those turns, like... Mm-hmm frame building 101 Mm -hmm. or my book Mm -hmm. those weren't my ideas those were someone else's ideas but it was the right idea at the right time so I thought yes okay I'm gonna go with that speaking of your book um, which is entitled Paul Brody the man behind the Brody bikes you tell a great story in that book about doing some line art drawings you I think were either about to drive cab for a living or you had been driving cab for a living and you you wanted a way out of that and you felt your path out of that was some line art drawings and bike week in Daytona. And that's all I'm going to say. I want you to tell that story. I started doing these a set of drawings and, and some people thought that I had some potential. So I put a lot of energy into these drawings. I spent hours working on these drawings. And the plan was that I was driving cab at the time. I would save up the money and I would get 
500 prints made of each, which was 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 2,000 prints, and that cost me $600. So I had boxes of prints, and I thought that if I went down to Bike Week in Daytona in my old Austin Cambridge, that I could walk around the streets and I could sell a set of prints for $30. That's what I thought. Now, I was pretty young then, and I was kind of naive at the same time. So whether or not if I got down there, I could actually sell them, I don't know. But I had the plan. I had this old car. So I had some friends down there, and I didn't know about how to cross the border and fill out the forms. So I set it up that I would have supper with some friends down there after I picked up the prints. So I went through the border, and they wanted me to open up the trunk. And I had my story straight, so I, I didn't get into trouble. But I got turned back, and I realized that... Well, what was the story that you told them? That I had just picked up the prints on the way to go have supper with friends down in Washington, and I was coming home that night. And that was true, because I was good, but I was going to leave the prints down there. And then next day, I was going to take out the passenger seat of my car and install a foamy so I could sleep on my car on the way down to Florida. And then I was going to sell the prints, make quite a bit of money, leave the car down there and fly home with a lot of cash. Now, I think... I mean, you'd really thought this thing through. I have an imagination. That's that's for sure. And I don't know. I mean, back in those days, I'm not sure that my feet were really on the ground when it came to business plans and things like that. Because I think probably at some point I should have gone to business school because I did start up a business. But I mean, you're convinced that this is going to work. So how did it turn out? Well, I got turned back at the border. Oh, and it was over at that stage. Yeah. And they told me that, you know, they could have confiscated all my prints and I was playing really innocent that oh, I didn't know that that was a problem and so they let me go and I realized that my window of opportunity had passed so I went back to cab driving and in the end I had all these prints and I still have a couple but it took me years just to even give them away. <laughs> Paul the, the intriguing thing that I'm finding and there's a couple of examples in your book um, where you make a decision or something happened where you had a pretty significant setback and you've demonstrated time and time again the ability to put those things behind you. Can you talk about that a little bit in terms of your ability to do that and the importance that's played in your career? Yes. Over the course of my life, I've had numerous setbacks, whether they're financial or, or personal, things like that. But I guess I'm just one of those people that never gives up. I'll just, I'll just keep on going. I am a fighter, and I think that's partly how I got to where I am. It hasn't always been easy, but sometimes it is best if you just walk away and you count your losses and and move on. So in addition to becoming an, being an aspiring artist, uh, you also spent some time driving a cab, learning to play the saxophone, which we talked about a little bit. You attended some college. I think that was at your father's behest, if I'm not mistaken. And you also traveled extensively in Europe and India and Afghanistan. Was it that you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do at that stage in your life or that no one thing really grabbed your attention? I thought about a lot of things. I thought about being an architect. And so my mom sent me to see an architect and we talked for a little while. I was going to be a scuba diver. I, I thought about a lot of things, but I really just didn't know what I was going to do. I always knew somehow that I would be successful. I didn't know how, and I thought it would just happen to me. And then I was driving cab and I realized that, no, it's not 
just going to happen to me. I'm going to have to work hard to make it happen. And then I realized that, no, I'm not going to have to just work hard. I'm going to have to work really hard. It was a process of trying to figure out what I wanted, and there was never any clear answer. And the cab driving led to the bicycle shop, and but that was just working at a bicycle shop, and ultimately, ultimately that led to making frames. But I never ever thought about that I wanted to be a frame builder. That was never on my mind. It was just being in the situation at the right time and having some talent and some skills and convincing people that I could do that. When I approached Rocky Mountain to build frames, they were really skeptical. What was the relationship with your mom and dad with respect to your career choices? I can't remember ever ever sitting down and having a long discussion about what I should do or whatever, but my father always said that if I wanted to go to university, he would pay for me. He had some funds set aside. I never felt a lot of pressure from them to do anything, and whatever I wanted to do, that was fine by them. So that was, that was kind of nice in a way, that I didn't feel obligated to do something. In what seems like a turning point in your career, you started working at the Peddler Bike Shop located at Broadway and Fraser. You modified a Sakine frame into something resembling a mountain bike. I got inspired when I saw the first Ritchie mountain bike show up at the shop. I knew that I had a welding set and I could do something. I didn't have any money, but I could hack up a frame and spray paint it red, and that's basically what I did. The people at Rocky Mountain who are in the back of the peddler, they kind of took a little notice of that, and I think that helped me to get my frame building job with them. Because not too long after that, you started painting frames for them. And then not long after that, you were designing and making frames for Rocky Mountain. At that moment, did you know or have a sense that you were onto something that you would still be doing 40 years later? At Rocky Mountain, I wasn't actually working for Rocky Mountain. I was on under contract and I was, you know, doing a this job, that job, and I could see that, you know, often they had a meeting behind closed doors. And that always kind of intrigued me. And I wanted to be a part of that inner circle in a way. So I knew that that was something that I wanted. And at the same time, I was highly motivated to do something in my life that would have some meaning. And so one thing just kind of led to another. And I was building frame. I was Rocky Mountain's first mountain bike frame builder. That you had somehow convinced the owners of Rocky Mountain really with no experience other than the one modification to the Sakim bike. Yeah, because a year previous, I was I started by assembling 10 speeds, which is kind of the lowest job you can get in a bicycle shop, assembling a cheap all-steel bicycle. And then I was building shelving and steps and making signs. I was doing a whole range of things with my skills. I don't think they thought I could build a frame. And when I did build that first frame and I I showed one of the owners he was completely surprised <laughs> that, that I, had, I had built something like that did you surprise yourself at all I don't think I, I surprised myself I just knew that I had to really focus on it and actually what I did after I got the job I I borrowed a a Ritchie frame because Rocky Mountain was selling the Ritchie frames mm-hmm. and he was kind of the benchmark at the time. And I, I literally took it home, sat on my sofa, held the frame, maybe had a notepad, and thought 
how would Tom do this? As in Tom Ritchie. Wow. How would Tom do this? That's, so I spent five days basically just using my brain and trying to imagine how to do it. As early as frame 002, you put design by Brody on your Rocky Mountain frames. So it seems like you've always thought of that as something more than constructing a device or a machine for some mechanical purpose. Almost like you were signing drawings from earlier in your career. Why was it that you felt you wanted to serialize and sign the frames from such an early point? I know that I have I have somewhat of an ego, although I think it's kind of well contained by this point in my life. And I, I was wanting to make my mark somehow and i asked rocky if i if i make a decal if i pay for the decal myself can i put it on the frame and they said yes and the frame that i i was riding i had brody decals on it and i don't think the owners really approved but i don't think they could really say much i was looking for some recognition i think that's that's me being honest yeah that this was something that you had created you just wanted to sign your work and it felt pretty strange at first to see my name on a frame and then when I I started my own company of, of Brody Bikes to yeah. see other people riding it took a little while to get used to that and kind of let it sink in and speaking of names what's what was strange is that after the frames came out and they had my name on it people started naming their dogs Brody <laughs> And then they started naming their sons Brody. Wow. So I guess that's a compliment. In this segment, we talk with Paul about striking out on his own to establish his own company, Brody Research and Technology, also known as Brody Bikes. He discovered how complex a seemingly simple business can be. After a relatively short period of time, a few years, you launched Brody Bikes. And you were finally out on your own. You had your own shingle. Uh, how did you feel about that at the time? Did it provide a kind of freedom that you hadn't had before? It was a good feeling because I, I, I had wanted to leave Rocky for at least one year. And I was setting up. And when I started that process of leaving and setting up my own shop, it shows how, how, how bad I am at estimating. Because I thought I could do it in six months and spend $4,000. And it ended up taking a year and $8,000. So I was off, off the mark it felt really good to be on my own and starting to be successful. What was nice about the first couple of years is that I was working out of my own shop. I wasn't paying rent because the shop was under my sun deck. And I always had a big wad of cash in my left pocket. And, and, and the number that seemed right for some reason was $700. <laughs> and so I always had $700 in my pocket. So if I went somewhere, I knew I could, I could buy it if I wanted. It's not like I went on a spending spree. And then in, in 88, when we moved into our, our first commercial lease, never had any money in my pocket ever again like that. It was really nice for a couple of years. I really felt like I was doing something and having the money, having the cash in my pocket, that was a sign to me that I had some success. And you tell a funny story in the book about the fact that you you were doing painting with Imran, which I don't know much about paint, but Imran is pretty lethal, and you had clouds of Imran paint wafting through the neighborhood. I didn't have a spray booth. It was the first summer. The business started in May of '86. <laughs> what I would do to paint a frame, because I knew how to paint frames, I would I would hang a stick off the sun deck and a little hook down and spray the frame and. 
and my next door neighbor was a, a Chinese lady and she had a wonderful garden, vegetable garden. She used the night soil and everything. And so I could only paint when the wind came from the west because she was on the west side of me because I knew that she would not be happy with the, with the Imrons floating over her vegetables. So I, I really had to choose my days. Another few years and another move of your shop later, you incorporated Brody Research and Technology, the acronym for which is BRAT. First of all, what was the story behind that? And what was the best part of owning your own shop? Well, the story of, of Brody Research and Technology is that Years ago, I had a girlfriend, and she often thought I was a brat. So I kind of thought it was a fun thing to do was to name the company Brat because not many people would realize where that came from. It was good running the business for a while because we were we were growing, expanding. I was hiring people. There was interest. There was interviews. Went to races, trade shows. I think there was a, a number of years where we were kind of on a high and people really thought that, yeah, we had we had made it. Similarly, what was the worst part? Well, I can think of one short story I can tell you. We had expanded. We had moved into the place next door as well. And that was a interior designer. So they had a beautiful office. And now we had the added expense of an extra lease and the bicycle business was starting to slow down. And I still remember people one day walking into the office and they looked around and they said, wow, you're doing really well. And what I didn't tell them is that I'd just gone to the bank and I'd got an advance on my visa so that I could, I could do payroll. I couldn't say anything because they were obviously thinking that things were great, but there's always, there's always the two sides. Were you able to put a, a positive spin on that when they were in that shop? Or did you have this disconnect between what was actually going on in your financial life? I didn't actually say anything at the time, but I just knew that what they were saying was not the reality of our situation at the time. And there was a lot of up and down because some years we'd have a good profit and the next year we'd have a huge loss. And it was very hard to know exactly where we were and the business was getting complex because we had distributors in Germany, Austria, and Japan, and maybe some other country too. And there was the exchange rates and importing and the duties and this and that. So it was really hard to nail down our true costs because we were, we were buying parts for the frames, parts for the bicycles from all different countries. And the exchange rates were changing. And so it was really hard to figure out just where we were financially. Well, and this was all pre-internet. Well, there was computers. We had Excel, but, yeah. but it, was, it was really kind of limited, and it was going to be a pretty complex situation, and I realized that it was spinning out of my control. I knew how to make frames, but how to run a, a business with that much complexity, I knew I was getting in over my head. There was a startling chapter in your book entitled The Needle, where you talk about getting very ill and eventually being diagnosed with diabetes. From the way you wrote it, it really sounded like things could have turned out way worse than they did. In fact, it sounds like you could have died. Did that episode change your approach to life? I told myself it did. I told myself I wasn't going to work as hard. But then ultimately, I didn't listen to myself. And I just went back to my old ways of 
pushing, pushing, maybe not quite as hard. I didn't slow down like I, I told myself I should. I don't think it's the end of the world having diabetes because I have to watch what I eat. I have to eat regularly. I've, I've been diabetic now for a quarter of a century at least, and I feel like I'm healthy. But you, at the time, didn't know any of that. Yeah, I was. I lost energy. I was cramping all the time. I lost 25 pounds that I didn't have to lose. My eyes and my cheeks got sunk in. I knew I was in a spot. It seems like a partial catalyst for eventually winding up things at Brody Bikes was an offer you received from Specialized in California. Can you talk about that episode in your life and, and how it fits into the overall arc of your life and career? It seemed like a really good opportunity because at Brody Research, the company was definitely struggling, hard to make money. And now there's, there was a company in the U.S. that was very well known. And they seemed to be well financed and they wanted to pay me quite a lot of money. I just had to get down there, and but I got, had to sell the business. And I learned in trying to sell the business that it's not very easy to sell a business, especially one that's not making money. They just couldn't understand why I couldn't get down there. So that was part of the problem. And ultimately, it's prob probably for the best that I didn't go down there because they have a, a little bit of a, a reputation for using people up and, and kind of casting them aside. So I don't know how long I would have lasted down there. But that didn't work out, so I was back at my, at my desk at Brody Research trying to figure out how to how to work things. Did you feel a sense of... Sounds pretty good. It could, oh, it, it, it could be my neighbor. He, he's got a race car. <laughs> I know. He like. just... That sounds pretty good. Did that kind of sow the seeds for finishing up Brody Bikes? No, I don't think so, but I was always looking for a way to make the company work. I mean, I read so many business books and business magazines. I feel like I kind of self-educated myself on a lot of that stuff. It was basically economic survival for quite a number of years, and then someone came along who wanted to buy half the name, so that's where it ended up. Well, I was going to say is that we're now going to move to... Um Another chapter in your life where you met Roger Yip of Cybersport and you sold half of the rights of your name to him. Why was that and how did you feel about that at the time? Well, it seemed like a logical step because it was getting harder and harder to make money as a, as a frame builder over here in, in North America and Roger was offering to pay me royalties and he was going to get bikes made over in Taiwan. Now, there was... All the talk that I'd sold out and the Brody name was now worth nothing and there was a lot of a lot of naysayers, but I think it was What was your reaction to that? We kinda knew that would happen and we talked about that, but the bicycle business it was evolving and to stay like we were, it wasn't easy to do, it wasn't long lasting, so something had to happen. And that's, that's the way that I chose to go with Roger's offer. A few years later, you sold the other half of the rights to the Brody name to Cybersport. Did you get a sense at that time that you were at the end of an era? 
No, I didn't feel any angst. I, I got to pay off a large part of my mortgage. I was hoping I could pay off the whole mortgage. We were meeting for lunch and we were negotiating and each of us was negotiating fairly hard and I, it was all friendly. There was nothing ever raised voices or anything, but I just, I came to see that he was not going to offer me any more money. And so I decided that, okay, I'll take what the offer is. It's a good offer and I'll just once again move on because it seemed to me the right thing to do at the time. As I was getting ready to track you down for this interview, I thought, where do I find him? Well, the first place I stopped was Brody Bikes, and they were very nice. A guy called Andy Summers said, well, he doesn't actually work here anymore. I think what has happened, well, I know what has happened is that Cybersport hasn't done much to let people know that I'm no longer involved in, in, in Brody Bikes. So often people make the assumption that I'm still at Brody Bikes, which is not quite right at all. That's okay, I guess. But no, I've, I've moved on. I've, I'm doing other things now. By this time in his career, Paul had sold the rights to the Brody name to Roger Yip of Cybersport of Vancouver, BC. This freed up Paul's time to return to one of his earlier passions, motorcycles. But around this time, once you had sold your name to Roger Yip in Cybersport, you began to turn your attention back to motorcycles, and in particular, an obscure brand of racing bike called an Excelsior. Can you tell us that story, and what is it about that particular brand that fascinated you? At the time, after I stopped making a lot of mountain bike frames, I got into the motorcycle area and I had some customers that were wanting me to make old frames and gas tanks and things like that. So what would happen is they would find an old engine at a swap meet for about $5,000 and they would hire me to make a lot of the parts, the exhaust, the frame, the forks, whatever, handlebars. And then I would charge them maybe, I don't know, 8000 or $10,000, which was okay for me. But then I realized that now they have a machine which is worth $40,000, $45,000. And I started to think that, well, you know, if I had an engine and if I made a frame, then I could make that money too. I was in, involved with a woman. This might seem like a little off track, but she ended up suing me and I owed a lot of money. And I was trying to think, how can I make this money? And so I thought about well, if I bought a little engine, and I, I did, I went to a swap meet, I bought a little Indian single cylinder engine, and I thought if I made that into a bike, I could sell that, but I would only get about $30,000, $35,000, and I owed well over a hundred. Then I started to think about the board trackers, and if I built a board tracker, I could sell that for that amount of money. So that was part of my reasoning. Just to, to clarify for the audience, board tracking is what exactly? Board tracking is a form of racing that happened back in the early 1900s, and it was a very exciting time because the speeds for the motorcycles often exceeded 100 miles an hour, whereas cars on the street could only do 30 miles an hour. It was really fascinating because crowds were huge. They often had 30,000 people at the big championship races. The riders of the days had names like Red Park, Hurst, and each of them had a, a special name in a way. And, and, and they were the real rock stars of the day. So I've always liked motorcycle racing. I've done some motorcycle racing myself. So I have a fascination for racing bikes. So it was kind of a natural thing that I would want to build 
A board track racer. So board track bike is a specific configuration of bike that would have been well suited to that particular kind of racing. Yeah, it had a huge engine. It was loud. It puked out smoke because the oiling system was so crude. It was called total loss. You put oil in, the engine uses it, spits it out. And the board tracks were made out of pine. I'm told they took 34 box cars of pine, as in railway box cars, and one one box car of spikes. And there's all sorts of stories about the board track racing. There was, because after a while, all these pine boards, when they were left out for year after year, the rain, the sun, the wind, it would make the board tracks not like they were. They got holes in them. So there's one story where the young kids, when the racing was on, they would poke their heads up through the hole in the board tracks and then when the bikes came around (laughs) put their heads down again can you imagine the sense that i get though is that 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 whole culture around board track racing is is part of the reason that you were attracted to building these particular kinds of motorcycles but what just surprised me about what you just said was that this was primarily an economic decision for you it certainly played a large a large part I was also I, I was doing this work for other customers and you know I would build a frame or a gas tank or a set of bars and there was not a kind of a flow to it and what I was looking for was something really big as well so yes there was that economic uh, a decision as well but I myself was looking for something that I could really sink my teeth into something that I could call my own that had a a real flow to it because all of, all of this other work that I was doing I mean it was interesting it was paying the bills but it was kind of I guess the word is fragmented a bit here a bit there no no flow I was looking for the flow the Excelsior bike business has turned out to be pretty good by the sounds of it I mean you've built how many now I built five I've sold four I think I'm almost at the break-even point. Break-even in what sense? Uh, well, I had a huge in investment in in the patterns, uh, getting castings made, buying parts. And the actual bikes themselves have gone around the world. Yes, one's in in New York. It's in Motorcyclopedia Museum. Second one went to Holland. Third one went to Australia. Fourth one went to Denver, Colorado. What's the demand in the future, do you think? I'm building 10. A total of 10? A total of 10. Right. I'm keeping number eight. This is number eight. Mm -hmm. I've also started naming them. Number four is Albert. Number five is Edward. And number eight, he's going to be a little bit rough and... So his name's Harry, and he's got high pipes. <laughs> you can see Harry. This is Harry High Pipes right right on your left here. For the benefit of our listeners, we're actually conducting this interview in Paul's shop, so we are surrounded by these magnificent bikes in various states of construction. I've been asked why I named them certain names. I mean, number two and number one didn't have names, but I started after that, and... I am from England, and I, if you notice the names, Albert, Edward, Harry, those are names of Very royal. part of the royal family. <laughs> but aside from that, I don't think of them as any kind of a royalty. That's, those are just the names. I, I like to name certain things. Why 10 specifically? Like why not 12? Why not 8? Well, when we used to do the bicycle frames, our racks were made to hold 10 frames, and 
it's a good number to go through because if, if you're only building one, that's a lot of work, ordering parts, getting pieces made. It doesn't make sense to do that all for one. Well, not in my mind. But if you do 10, then it can start to make economic sense. And have you visualized a series of 10 beyond that? Not of the Excelsior necessarily. Are there other bikes that sort of fit into that same realm in your view that you would gear up for and produce another run of 10? No. Oh, that's it. No, this is it. Yeah, <laughs> it's a closed yeah, close chapter. I think I'm uh, kind of. I think this is, you know, the pinnacle of of my projects to, uh, is is making ten Excelsiors. As you say in your book, there's nothing that I'm putting in this interview that that isn't covered in in your book. You also have a spiritual side. You actually go so far as to say that you believe that you're the reincarnation of a motorcycle racer by the a board track motorcycle racer by the name of Bob Perry from the 1920s. Can you tell us a little bit about the racer and how you came to believe you were him in another life? Okay, Bob Perry, he was an engineer and a racer for Excelsior, and the owner of the company was Ignaz Schwinn. He made a fortune making bicycles. The Schwinn bike. The Schwinn bike. Everybody knows that. And he bought Excelsior Company as the underdogs in 1913, I believe. And then Bob came on board and each of them lost their fathers at a really early age. And so they really had that a, a kind of a bond. That's my understanding of it. So when Bob lost his life at that early race in January of 1920, Ignaz Schwinn was, he was devastated. Like he'd lost his son. Yes. Or a brother. Yes. And so the rumor goes that he ordered all the bikes smashed and buried. And that could have happened, but I think there was a, a, a couple which were raced later on, but there was no factory support, so nothing ever happened really race worthy so this just fed into the legend of the elk celsius oh stage. yeah the yeah. smashing of the bikes the burying you know right a destruction right and so i've been i've been going to readings my whole life basically my mom got me into that because she was always into the spiritual side so i've always at some point you now i go have a reading see what's going on and sometimes good readings, sometimes bad readings, but... This is reading as as we would commonly understand it. I mean, you go to a psychic and they would tell you the future? No, it's not the future so much. It's, uh, it's about your life situation as it is, why things are happening, uh, possible outcomes. It's, it, it's nothing like, you know, if you go buy a, a lottery ticket, you're going to win big or things like that. And the woman I was seeing at the time, she was she would go into a, a trance and the guides would speak through her. Her voice would visibly alter when she when she started speaking. She would go quiet. She would sit still. And then a few moments later, she would say greetings. But her voice was different wow. because they're using her her body to speak through. So I really felt like I had a connection with the other side. I know a lot of people don't understand this or whatever, but I was raised this way. And she was really good at this. She's passed away now, so mm -hmm. kind of lost that. I knew that there was something that I didn't know about the Excelsiors. And so I went to see her to try and understand what I was missing because I, I knew it was my intuition was telling me I've always used my intuition a lot so I've worked on my intuition over the years 
And we hadn't even sat down and she says, my God, you were Bob Perry. And it's like, that was a total shock to me. I just... And you set her up at all? Like, did she know that name prior to the reading? Don't think so, no. So she just managed to produce this spontaneously. Yeah, she said, my God, that's what they're telling me right now. And so it, it made sense because in that life, it was cut short and, and the bike never reached its, its full potential because Ignaz Schwinn, he cut the racing department. There was no more funding, no more race department. I guess for me, in that last life, it was unfinished business. I know that I see the world a little differently from other people. I believe that we all have many lives And when we're on the other side, we decide what we want to do, who we want to associate with, who our contacts will be, what we'll do in a sense. I know there's some give and take. It's not just you come down here and and there's no change at all. Things change, but the basic idea of what you come down for, there's a certain purpose often. So I think one of the big things that I've come down to do is to build this race bike and to finish it off in a sense. The economics are really secondary. This is something that you almost feel like you were born to do. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Which for a lot of people, they probably just don't understand that. And when I was writing the book, I was really, really hesitant to add that into the book because I had no idea what people's reaction would be. And of all the people that read the book, virtually without exception, no one even mentions that. They say, good book. I enjoyed it very much. Now, there was only one person who ever said anything to me about that. And he told me that he found out that in his last last life, which was in the 1930s, he was in England. He was, uh, he was a pilot and they were testing experimental planes and he crashed and he lost his life. So it was really interesting that the only person who's ever really said anything to me about having another life, if someone is someone who also found that out about his past life. We were talking just before we started our our session today a little bit about this notion of passion for work, where work really isn't about work. It's about something beyond that. And I think that you've, you've raised the bar in terms of all of the guests we've had on the show, in terms of kind of where that passion comes from, because a lot of people are at a loss to explain it. I just wanted to become an astronaut and hear the reasons why I became an astronaut as an example. But you've really pointed to something where you were, again, kind of born to do this or reborn to do this. I'm told that my theme in life is, is, is transportation. And so in my last life, I was Bob Perry and I was a motorcycle racer, engineer. And the life before that, because I did a little bit of research on that, I worked on the trains, I was in the railroad, and somehow I figured out how to make the trains go faster. I got a book out of the library on trains, and I actually found a mention of a guy who had done that, so I guess that was previous life. Who knows what the next life is? I'm, I'm, I'm told it's transportation as well. I'm, I mean, transportation is a, is a huge spectrum, right? right. So <laughs> whether you race a bicycle or make a part for a motorcycle, somehow you're involved in transportation. Well, and I just think that's an absolutely remarkable story that you've told. And my question was going to be, what do you think is coming next for you? I think you've sort of answered that question. But as part of that same section in your book, you talk about the fact that you had the courage, and I'm not sure I would have the courage, to ask for, well, what's going to become of me in this life? I've got a motorcycle that I I race. It's 
it's behind us as we speak and that's and that's ruby racer and i did have a crash on ruby racer i was concerned that because in my last life i lost my life on an excelsior and i thought that what's the possibility of it happening in this life so i thought i'd better go back and find out about that so i went back to see glenna who was giving me the readings and i asked the question i said you know should i i be concerned about an accident or something like that and the response was well we'll just check and see how you die and it's like i sat there and i didn't know what to think because <laughs> don't I, tell me i didn't i didn't realize i was asking that question and then they said to me i didn't even know you could ask that question and they said, oh, don't worry. You're going to live a long life. You'll just die of old age. Oh. So that was that was good to know. I've just never heard anybody speak with such reverence for the subject. When I read it in the book, I didn't really have the sense that it was as serious for you as it is. Well, I was... This isn't a parlor trick for you. Oh, for sure. And uh, I believe that the only way you can make sense in this world is to believe in reincarnation because why would a child die of cancer at six and someone else live a long life where's the sense in that but if, if we come back multiple multiple times for various reasons to learn different lessons and experience and all that then it starts to make sense i believe really strongly that we've all had many many lives that there's a lot of 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 connectedness you know you meet someone and there's a connection it could very easily be that you know you were together in this other life maybe multiple lives i used to wonder when i was younger you know how many lives could i have had like i thought maybe eight maybe a dozen i didn't know so at this one reading i went to because often i ask all, all different kinds of questions right it's not just about me but i ask about you know, how things work in the universe, things like that. Mm -hmm. So I asked, I said, how many lives have I had? And they said, oh, it doesn't matter. I said, no, I'd, I'd like to know. And, and I could tell that they didn't really want to answer me. So I, I pressed them on it. And I think I was told 76,000. I, I thought, 76,000? And, and the lives aren't necessarily... On this earth, there's other places you can have a life as well, because there's more than one universe. In this final segment, we talked to Paul about some of his other unique projects and asked for a few final thoughts as we wrap up our discussion of his life and career. You've also taken on some other really fascinating projects. I'm thinking specifically of the 1888 Whippet, can you tell us about these projects and what kind of grabs your attention about them? Well, the 1888 Whippet, it got off to a really kind of innocuous start. I teach Frame Building 101, and obviously when the students start the class, each student has a, has a project. They're going to build their own frame. We're in the class, and each student has a project, and I wanted to say that I had a project, but I didn't have a project. I have a book called It's Bicycles and Tricycles. It's by Archibald Sharp. It was written... I'll put out in 1896. It's a wonderful book. And I would often look through the book, and every time I came to the Whippet, it really drew me. So I made a photocopy of that line drawing. It's not even a photograph. They didn't have cameras back then. And I announced to the class, 
I have a project too. I'm going to build an 1880 Whippet. And I knew nothing about it. All I had was a drawing. One, one drawing. One drawing. <laughs> Just from one side of the bike too. Wow. So I thought that I would collect parts and I would make a black bicycle Whippet. Maybe, maybe even have some disc brakes on it. So I started on modern this, disc brakes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So just because I was just going to build this bike for fun. Yeah. Someone told me that in Ottawa is a museum of science and technology, and they had one. So I contacted them, and yes, it was upstairs. It was not on display. It was under plastic. And I asked if they'd take photographs of it, and they did. And they sent me the photographs of all different parts of the bikes, hubs, cranks, all that. And I realized it was really quite sophisticated and elegant, and I couldn't just make a whippet that was black with disc brakes. I had to do it, it some justice. About that time, I was talking with my, my boss at the university, and I told him that I'm building this bike, and I found out about NABS. NABS is the North American hand-built show mm -hmm. held every year. And that's where all the best bicycle builders in the world go to. So he agreed that if I built the bike, he would sponsor me and the university, we would have a booth. We would go down there. So this was exciting now. And so I realized that I couldn't just make a bike. I would have to do my very best work because I was putting it on show against the best builders. So that's how it all kind of started. We, we went down there and the bike won, won people's choice. So that was great. So I got a lot of exposure for the university. And the university was very happy. They wanted me to go down next year as well. And so that's kind of how that project took off. Well, and, and just for the benefit of our listeners, I mean, really, the 1888 Whippet is a full suspension bike, which have only really become popular in the last sort of decade or two. I mean, so it was 100 years ahead of its time. Yeah, it was not for the same sort of thing that our suspension bikes are for now, because now they're for leaping off mountains and down huge hills whereas back in 1888 it was to soften the harshness of the cobblestones because the tires were solid rubber it must have been a really rough ride <laughs> so in 1888 that's when dunlop invented the pneumatic tire and made the bike obsolete so it was only ever made from 1885 to 1888 and there's only about a dozen examples in the world right now so it's it's a very rare bike you mentioned briefly that relatively late in midlife, uh, you returned to college, but not as a student, um, but rather as a teacher of Frame Building 101 at the, the University of the Fraser Valley. First of all, tell us briefly about the course, and in particular, why were you drawn to teaching at this stage in your life? It wasn't my idea. I had my frame jigs upstairs in my office for about five years, and I never used them once because there was no demand for Hand, well, my hand-built frames anyway at that time. So I had, had the idea as coming back to the shop from lunch and I thought, you know, I, I need a new motorcycle trials bike and I bet if I sold those jigs, I could get $8,000 and I could buy a new trials bike. So I put an ad on Craigslist and in, in 12 hours, I had an email from Switzerland and Sweden, I believe. And there's a website in England. It's for all mountain bikes. I think it's Retro Bike, and it put it on the front page of its website. So there was this huge amount of interest. But the person who ended up buying the bikes is uh, buying the frame jigs was Brent Martin. Now Brent Martin, he's been a friend for a long time, and he won the 
86 Canadian Championship on a Brody bike, which helped to launch the bikes. So he buys the jigs, but he's in the sunglass business. He's not a frame builder. He has no interest in building frames. And he's, so, so now that he has the jigs, they're his, he says to me, why don't you teach frame building? So that's how it started. So now we have to find a place. So he knew some people at Capilano College. So we went and had some meetings there and they were interested, but they didn't have the space. So then I had a friend who worked at BCIT and he arranged some meetings there and didn't seem to go anywhere. And ultimately they said, you know, us being BCIT and bicycles, that's not a good mix. And I thought that was very, very strange in this day and age to say that, no, we don't like bicycles. They, they, they must be kicking themselves now. I don't know. And so then I thought, well, where else? And I thought, well, there's got to be something in the Fraser Valley. So I looked on the internet and there was University of the Fraser Valley and right on their webpage, it says, if you are interested in teaching a course, contact us. So we had a breakfast meeting at the White Spot at eight o'clock in the morning. And that's how it all started. And you've run how many sessions now? Done 50, 50 classes. 50? Oh, I thought this had just started. No, and in September, which is only a few months ago, that'll be seven years. Wow. And so how many frames have been produced as a result of that? Well, the classes aren't always full, but probably 120, 130, something like that. So has this created a culture or a sort of subculture of frame builders in the Lower Mainland now? I mean, No, because it's, it's not just the Lower Mainland. What's, what's really interesting is that people from Vancouver say, if you were closer, I'd take your course. Oh, you must be joking. And, then, and I find that really odd because we've had two students from Australia, right. one from Germany, one from Greece, one from Colombia, one from Mexico, and on and on. So these people fly in, rent a hotel, sometimes a car, come to the course, go home. And start a bike frame building business in their own country, not here. Sometimes they do, yeah. but yet people from Vancouver, it's too far. My observation from reading your book, and I may well be wrong about this, is that you're a bit of a restless soul. Over the course of your life, it seems there has always been something else you wanted to do. First of all, is that a fair characterization? And if so, why do you think that is? I think it's a fair characterization. I think it's truthful. I think I get bored easily. I always need to be pushing somehow. I think it's part of my nature. See, in the frame building business, after the frame building got done, I had four, four guys making frames. And the parts business in a lot of other areas, it was taken off. So I spent most of my energy trying to uh, develop new parts for the bikes and mm -hmm. things like that. Yes, that's, that's a part of my nature to always want to do something a little different, try something else. We're getting to the end of our time today, Paul, and it's been a fascinating discussion, but I do have a couple of sort of wrap-up questions. If the 60-something Paul Brody could have a conversation with that mini-bike-building kid back in Point Grey, what might the run of the conversation be, and what advice might you offer him? Good question. Not necessarily an easy answer. I guess always believe in yourself and, and never give up, and I think that's 
one of the qualities I have. I don't give up, and that's I think that's a part of the reason for what success I've had. Never gave up. Would the mini bike riding kid have taken that advice? Probably not, because I think he knew everything at that point. Right. <laughs> Right. And now now that I'm my age, just over 60, I realize that, yes, I know some things, but there's a lot I don't know. Paul, we have a signature feature on the show where we give the guest the opportunity to both ask and answer the last question. In all the interviews you've done over the years, what's the one thing you've never been asked and that you wish you had been? It's a tough question, but I've thought about it, and the only thing I came up with that no one's ever asked me, although I haven't been asked every question, on, in your next life, what would you like to come back as? Fantastic. So what's your answer? I would like to be a transportation scientist. So help us understand what that means exactly. It would be looking for new ways f- for people to move from A to B in whatever way that is. Maybe it's some kind of a thought process where you suddenly you just over there because you thought about it. I don't I don't I don't have any any other way of explaining it aside from that. And if it's a future life, it may not be a job that's actually been invented yet. That could be. It doesn't exist yet. It'll exist in the next century or the next few centuries. Could be. Fantastic. Okay, here's my real final what does a guy have to do to uh, get a custom Paul Brody frame made? Well, you got to be on, on a list of my friends <laughs> and, uh, and maybe play... Are you good, taking applications? <laughs> and play a good game of chess. <laughs> oh, 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 boy. I'm not going to see one of those for a long time. <laughs> okay, but I think we can still be friends. Oh, good. Excellent. That's really great. Paul, it has been an absolute delight i just can't say enough about how much i've enjoyed our conversation today do you have any final thoughts that that keeping in mind that that this is going to be captured immemorial and uh and it'll go on forever is there a thought that you'd like to leave our listeners with um the birds are talking right now the birds are uh, i was gonna say if if only i knew what he said i don't know what he said (laughs) i would like to thank you this has been a A very nice interview. I've enjoyed it very much, and uh, I hope people like my book. Excellent. Paul. And once again, the title of Paul's book is Paul Brody, The Man Behind Brody Bikes. I read it in anticipating this interview, and it is, I can speak from the first person, it's an absolute delight from, from beginning to end. I would highly recommend. There is one last thing, is that I always like to leave the door open for a follow-up interview is that the people who I've had the great pleasure and honor to be able to interview, I've asked them all if I can revisit with them at some point down the road when that career of theirs has evolved that little bit more. And I would like to open the door for that if I could and talk about what projects are uh, occupying your attention at some point in the future. Could I do that? Of course you can. That's great. Thank you, Terry. I would like to once again thank our very special guest, Paul Brody, fabricator, artist, and educator. The Work Not Work Show is on all of your favorite social media platforms. Please drop us a line with your feedback. We would love to hear from you. The show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Terence Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Canada. All rights are reserved. Thank you, Michelle, my lovely wife, for your support and your infinite patience. I couldn't do this without you. Finally, thank you, our faithful audience, for supporting the Work Not Work Show, the show about people who, like Paul, have turned their passion into their profession. Thank you.